LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how a better night's sleep can revolutionize your health. I did not sleep very well last night. I woke up around 3.30 in the morning. I tried to reinsert myself into my dream, which is a technique I sometimes use without success. I finally got out of bed and contemplated my big toe, squinted at it, drank a CBD drink while thinking drowsy thoughts, got back into bed, no luck. Then I resorted to a glass of wine, still wide awake. This was made all the worse by my newly expanded knowledge of the consequences of inadequate sleep, courtesy of an extraordinary new book by Oxford neuroscientist Russell Foster called Lifetime, Your Body Clock and Its Essential Roles in Good Health and Sleep. It turns out people who slept for four hours have a higher rate of car accidents than if they were legally drunk. If you are sleep deprived, you are quite literally walking around intoxicated. But it's not just about the cognitive impairment. When we don't get enough sleep, we are cranky, less empathetic, and we remember a higher proportion of negative experiences. Isn't that remarkable? Our immune systems are compromised, and as if the news couldn't get any worse, repeated over many years, sleep deprivation appears to be carcinogenic. It gives you cancer. All these thoughts caromed across my skull as I failed to get to sleep last night, making it even harder for me to fall asleep. Sadly, this anxious feedback loop keeps many of us tossing and turning night after night, further raising the stakes. Russell calls this our modern sleep anxiety disorder. American culture has a troubled relationship with sleep. Thomas Jefferson slept sitting up so he could leap out of bed after just a few hours. Edgar Allan Poe complained, sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. And Thomas Edison reportedly dismissed sleep as, quote, a criminal waste of time and a heritage from our cave days. And of course, he helped us push back that pesky sleep problem with his invention of the electric light bulb. It seems that sleep and our American obsession with hyperproductivity are at odds. That's certainly how I felt growing up. In my late teens and early 20s, the statement, I will sleep when I'm dead, was something repeated now and then by my friends. It was a rallying cry for young men of action as we thought of ourselves. What I didn't know back then was that the quote came from the musician Warren Zevon, who died of cancer at the age of 56. Now, I don't know anything about Warren's sleep habits and whether they contributed to his early death, but I do know that our commitment to working all day and playing all night, our mistaken belief that we can choose to be nocturnal animals, it flies in the face of the 24-hour biological clock that was designed over billions of years to dictate when we wake, sleep, eat, and do all sorts of other things. Russell Foster has spent his career studying that clock, and he says that, like it or not, we are programmed to be active during the day and dormant at night. Yet many of us have a hard time accepting that reality. We go to bed too late, we wake up too early, we rely on stimulants like caffeine and sedatives like alcohol. Indeed, I made that mistake a few hours ago. I'm happy to report that I did finally get back to sleep. Thank God, I feel so much better. My synapses feel snappier. I can feel the extraordinary restorative power of sleep that Russell describes. It's no wonder then that he wants us all to get more sleep because if we do that, he says, we can live happier, healthier, funnier, and sexier lives. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
Russell Foster, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks so much, Rufus. I'm really delighted to be able to join you today. Well, Russell, I have to ask you on the front end, how did you sleep last night? <laughs> well, actually, I slept quite badly last night. I oh, no. To, <laughs> but which is, which is not characteristic. I slept well enough, and, and normally I sleep um, very well indeed. So, yeah, last night was a, a bit of an anomaly. What's the minimum that you need to feel like you're functioning well? I think uh, I can function optimally between seven and eight hours. And, and of course, there's lots of individual variations. Some people can perfectly well function on six. Other people may need 10 or in, in some cases, 10 and a half, 11. And, and I think it raises a very important point because sleep is like shoe size. One size does not fit all. And part of the reason for, 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 for writing Lifetime was because I was getting a little bit irritated with the sort of sergeant majors of sleep screaming, you know, you must do this and you must do Interesting. that. And, 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 you know, the, the, the mantra that you must get eight hours, well, that's an average. But some people are perfectly fine on, on less and some absolutely need more. I was, I was asked before lockdown by, by a chap who said to me, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, yeah, I can guarantee you're going to die, but it may have nothing to do <laughs> with the fact you're not getting eight hours of sleep. And the key thing, of course, is that we, we need to assess for ourselves whether we're getting the sufficient sleep to allow us to function optimally during the day. And that's, that's really a, a, big, a big point of the book. What I think of sort of like the axes of, of health, I think of diet, I think of exercise, and increasingly, I think we think of sleep. But sleep seems to be the last of these three to be fully appreciated. I think you would argue we still have a ways to go in collectively understanding how fundamental and important this is. Why has it taken so long? Well, well, and of course, if you think about the pre-industrial era and the writings of Shakespeare, you know, the honey heavy dew of slumber or <laughs> Wonderful. Know, sleep, sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have mm. I forsaken thee? You know, we had embraced it naturally. And then I think with industrialization and the fact that we could invade the night with electric light cheaply and safely, because we could do it, we did it. And, yeah. in, and in the process, we threw away that fundamental you know, part of our biology, which is our sleep. I mean, you, you and I will remember that in the 80s, of course, not having a, a night of sleep was a badge of honor. You know, people used to come into yes. work and say, oh, I've done another all night nighter. And people would slap them on the black and say, oh, well done. And then, you know, it took about 20 years to the turn of the century when people started taking sleep a bit seriously. Yeah. But now we've got to the stage where I think a lot of people have got a condition called sleep anxiety, which is they're so anxious about not getting their sleep and so frightened about the consequences because there's so much misinformation out there. They can't get to sleep. And if they wake up, they can't fall back to sleep again. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to get a sort of a corrective. Having read your book, Russell, I feel like I know you to some degree. <laughs> and I believe you're a glass half full guy. You're sort of an optimist, as am I. And it may not be in our nature to scare people. But I think it may be helpful as a public service to just hit people straight up with how profound the negative impact of inadequate sleep can be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we can divide the impact of not getting enough sleep into two, two domains. One is the acute impact of not getting yeah. sleep, which is what we all sort of experience. So many of the things that, uh, if we think about those, these short-term effects, many of the things that make us human are affected. So, you know, we see fluctuations in, in mood and what's called a negative salience. This is so, so fascinating. So it's interesting. Been, yeah. It, yeah. It's been shown that the tired brain remembers negative experiences, but forgets the positive ones. So if you're tired, your whole worldview is being biased by those negative experiences. Um, you get feelings of irritability and anxiety when you're tired. Loss of empathy. I think this is such an interesting one, yeah. too. You're yeah. failing to pick up the social signals of your family, friends, uh, uh, colleagues, and you show increased levels of frustration, risk-taking and impulsivity, doing stupid and unreflective things, You know, thinking you can make that, that stoplight before it turns red. And of course, you can't, and you wouldn't do this if you were fully rested. But you know, you do these stupid things once you're tired. 
The tired brain is, is seeking stimulants, such as caffeinated drinks, to try and keep it going throughout the day. But that's also associated with then sedatives at night. So tired people drive the waking day with endless cups of coffee or caffeinated drinks. And then, of course, caffeine lasts in the body for some considerable time. So then they think, oh, goodness, I've got to get some sleep. And then they sedate themselves using alcohol. And of course, alcohol can actually impair some of the important things going on in the brain whilst we sleep. So memory consolidation and the processing of, of information to come up with innovative solutions uh, to complex problems. I mean, I think some, again, some great, beautiful science has shown that a night of sleep can genuinely enhance our capacity for creativity to, to, to problem solve. Yeah. So whilst we're asleep, it's not that the brain is turned off, but it's laying down memories and it's processing that information. And I think that's, that's just so cool. So those wonderful things that make us this very special animal have been blasted by a lack of sleep. And that's just the short-term stuff. If we yeah. think about the longer chronic impact of sleep on our physiology and health, then we now have very good data showing that night shift workers, for example, or, mm. or the business community, you know, where people are, um, are getting very little sleep uh, during uh, the nighttime, we're seeing cardiovascular disease, really increasing, altered sensory thresholds. So feelings of, of coldness, strange stress responses. You're pumping out much higher levels of the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. And that may be associated with uh, increased levels of it, uh, infection and lowered immunity. And that may be connected to the higher rates of cancer. So for example, the World Health Organization has now classified night shift work as a probable carcinogen because of the studies correlating high rates of cancer with night shift work. And a really important factor is that if you are vulnerable to depression or psychiatric illness, poor sleep can slide you into a more um, pathological state. So uh, I think the really important point here is that poor sleep is not just feeling tired at mm. an inappropriate time, but it's having massive impacts upon our emotional and cognitive health, but also our, our, our physiological uh, our, our health and well-being, and not least our mental health. So yeah, it's really important. The shift work data is extraordinary. I mean, as it happens, as you explain, people just don't get used to a night shift job yeah. because of the power of light and, and our circadian rhythms. But we see, as you say, not only is this effectively carcinogenic, but it increases the rates of divorce meaningfully, oh, yeah. right? Among, among shift workers and, and car accidents driving home, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got, for example, the, the tendency to microsleep. And I think frighteningly, we probably all experience this where we've momentarily fallen asleep at the wheel um, after a long, boring journey. And it's uncontrollable. And in the American freeway system, the estimates are that a minimum of 100,000 crashes are caused by microsleeps, uncontrollable falling asleep. And other groups suggest that the accident rate might be as high as 300,000 crashes every year due to falling asleep. Divorce rate is, is also fascinating. In some sectors, again, American studies have shown the divorce rate can be six times higher for yeah. some night shift workers compared to the equivalent day shift workers. And this is huge. And of course, you know, it all ties in with that risk-tasing, impulsivity, stimulant sedative use, you know, loss of empathy, frustration. And I think there's a very important educational message here because not only should we alert our, our, our night shift workers and indeed the whole community about the importance of sleep, but also their friends, family, the people that they spend their lives mm, with. Yeah. Because it's not that this person has turned into a monster, mm. you know, knowingly or wanting yeah. to be this sort of person. It's a consequence of the job. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult, really difficult, but I think we need to cut them some slack. And it seems that we may also need some, some kind of uh change in approach to night shift work. I mean, we clearly need night shift workers to, to take care of us in hospitals and, and so on. But it, one does get the sense that, my gosh, the burden of having these late shifts should be shared and, and no, no one should do it for decades. And do yeah. right? I mean, you think we should have a change in legislation? I, I absolutely do. And you raise a, a really important point, which is what's the duty of care of an employer to their employee? 
We're not going to put the 24-7 society back in its bottle. It's a genie that's escaped. But what we can do is think about mitigation. Of course, there's great variation in sleep timing, one's chronotype, whether you're a morning person or an evening person. Yes, yes. So it would make an awful lot of sense to chronotype your workforce. So the late types do the late shift, the morning types do the morning shift. And you don't certainly put a late type, somebody like me, uh, on the morning shift, which would really wreck my ability to function. So yeah, it's this stuff we can do, and we're not sadly doing it. And when we talk about shift workers, we have an ability to look very specifically at these health consequences, mood consequences, you know, marriage failure, all this impact of reduced sleep. But of course, it's not just about shift workers. It's about everyone who gets inadequate sleep, which, uh, you know, in the book you reference, uh, I, I think nearly a quarter of UK residents barely get five hours of sleep per night. I'm guessing in the US, it's probably not too dissimilar. In the 1950s, I think you say we were getting one to two hours of more sleep per night. So this is a this is not isolated to to shift workers. This is a large scale problem in the Western world. You're absolutely right. Um, and and as I said, you know, because we can invade the night with cheap electricity, we do, and uh, we've sacrificed sleep. But but I think it's important to be because there's so much individual ver variation to actually mm -hmm. just just sort yeah. of spend a little time thinking about well how do you know if you're not getting enough sleep? And so the first straightforward thing is if you're not feeling as though you're functioning optimally during the day, this is probably telling you you're not getting enough sleep at night. If you're dependent upon an alarm clock or another person to wake you up rather than waking naturally, that's a sign you're not getting enough sleep. A key one, an absolutely key one, is oversleeping extensively on free days such as the weekend, and particularly when you go away on holiday. You know, after you've sort of decompressed um, and it's that sort of third or fourth night on holiday, then you can, you know, uh, unmask your your sort of m more natural sleeping patterns. If it takes you a long time to wake up, you know, if you've got a lot of sleep inertia, you're feeling groggy for a long time after you've been woken up, um, and you feel sleepy, irritable, and fatigued when you are awake, if you crave a nap, and we should talk about naps because there's some really interesting mm -hmm. stuff going on there, Rufus. Um, your behavior is overly impulsive. We've talked about that. You've, you're craving those caffeinated drinks, but also listening to your friends, your colleagues, your, your family, you know, when they say, gosh, you know, you're showing changes, you know, you're more irritable, you're, you're not showing the same kind of kindness or empathy. And of course, doing stupid and unreflective things, disinhibited. Now, this is not rocket science. We can all assess this in ourselves. And if it's yes to several of those issues, then we're not getting the sleep that we need. And then we need to do some, undertake some behavioral changes. It's so extraordinary, this impact on our personalities and our moods. And, and I, I want to bring back up something that you mentioned earlier, which is that the tired brain is more likely to retain negative memories than a well-rested brain. Um, so, so walking around tired, we have a negative filter yes. on the world around us, right? And we're, as you say, less empathetic. So, so we, we literally are different people. We're cognitively impaired. It's almost like we're walking around drunk. Right. I mean, yes. if you've had maybe just you know dropping from eight hours to say five hours of sleep, that might be enough to have all these effects we're talking about, right? Oh yes, absolutely. And it's also we've talked about the business sector and we've talked about night shift work, but I think we also need to address the relationship between poverty and lack mm. of sleep. We did a, we did a study recently on early teenagers and in our questionnaire we we say do you, do you share your your sleeping space your bedroom with anybody else? What we didn't ask is do you have a bed? And oh, wow. what became very clear is that in uh, individuals from a low socioeconomic background, they're sleeping on the family sofa. The, uh, they're trying to sleep while the parents are watching the television. The, the parents may be, one of them may be doing night shift work. And in a sense, if you inflict that level of impaired sleep on a youngster, then they can't take full opportunity of their educational experiences at school. And so they're, they're already on that trajectory of, mm, of, 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 you know, being socially isolated and, and loss of social opportunities because of the poor sleep they're getting. And so I think there's another dimension to this. As I say, I think uh, poor sleep is a, is a hallmark of, of low socioeconomic status. And we've got to do something about that. Otherwise, you'll never get out of that, that 
trap. Wow. Well, another um, complicated relationship is that between sleep deprivation and mental health. Yeah. And you've done some interesting research here, right? But it seems that the two are, are, are quite correlated. Yeah. I was in an elevator with a psychiatrist in, in before I was in, was in Oxford in my previous um, institution. And this, this psychiatrist said to me, you know, you work on sleep, don't you? And I said, well, you know, kind of, yes. And he said, oh, well, my, my patients with schizophrenia have terrible sleep. That's because they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, get up late, miss my clinic and don't have friends. And I thought that was one of the most stupid things I'd ever heard. And so that triggered us to then start looking at, at sleep wake in individuals with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And I won't bore you with all the experiments we, we've done in that, that area. But of course, it's more complicated than that because sleep disruption will promote both sort of the physiological changes, so so exacerbate uh, levels of depression, will change our physiology, will change our stress hormone milieu and all that sort of stuff. Then the poor sleep in of itself will feed in and make the psychiatric illness worse. And of course, the psychiatric illness will feed back and make the sleep worse. And so what we did with that theoretical you know, idea and, and working with a brilliant um, psychiatrist colleague here in Oxford, um, Dan Freeman, is partially stabilize sleep in individuals with insomnia showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. So features of, of a psychiatric illness um, such as schizophrenia. And what was so completely wonderful is that partial stabilization of sleep-wake was able to reduce the severity of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And I think that's so incredibly exciting because what it means mm -hmm. is we've got a new therapeutic target for mental illness. So, you know, even if it's partial stabilization, it means you'll nudge somebody away from a severe psychiatric or depressive state. It's extraordinary. So, so sleep is potentially a kind of therapy that probably can help people with all sorts of challenges. Yeah. What one starts to feel that sleep is sort of like this dark matter factor that <laughs> that affects all of our lives, right? That it, yeah. that it's this unspoken that when we look at traffic fatalities and the data behind it, that actually sleep deprivation is a much bigger factor than we thought there. We look at mental health problems. It's a much bigger factor than we thought there. And this makes me think of, I, I have three sons, Russell, two of whom are teenagers, and they have been subjected to my proselytizing on the subject of sleep. And when I told them about the extraordinary benefits of getting more sleep, they said, yes, dad, but people who go to bed early have no friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, it's true. And and so studies that we have done and others, and some particularly wonderful studies by Mary Kaskaden uh, at Brown University in the United States, and she's been really the pioneer in this area, have shown that you know, teenagers can be very much aware that not getting enough sleep is not great for you. Yes. But but the consequences of not being in contact with your your set through social media are, are even worse. Uh, and you know, teenagers they have a it's it's tough. And I'm deeply sympathetic because they face a whole bunch of challenges that we didn't face. And I think it's worth sort of sort of looking at the biology a bit here. So what makes you a morning or an evening person? Well, first of all, uh, it's your genes. So, you know, essentially yeah. the genes that we get from our parents to some extent means that they're still telling us when to get up and when to go to bed. So it's partly genetic, but it's, it's more important than that. There's also a developmental change. So from the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. But then after those late teens, early 20s, there's a, a slow move to become more and more of a morning type. So by the time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed at about the time you got up and went to bed when you were 10. Uh, that difference on average is about two hours. So asking a teenager to get up at seven o'clock in the morning is like asking a 55-year-old to get up at five o'clock clock in the morning. And that's a real biological difference. And it's almost certainly due to the, the change levels of hormones, the sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, that, uh, mm -hmm. that rise rapidly during puberty and then change slowly as we age. That's right. That's right. And, and parents and educators need to also fully understand 
how central sleep is to so much of the the dysfunctionality we often see from our from our teenage children. Yeah. It is a conundrum, isn't it? Because we know, you know, we talked about sort of these three axes of 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 health, you know, diet, exercise, and sleep. But really, we've been learning recently that community and friendship mm. is almost a, uh, arguably a fourth axis of health, right? That we, that we deeply need to be connected with other Homo sapiens and as adolescents, all of a sudden, this desire to connect with our peers is this overwhelming biological desire. And quite literally, when I heard my son say, yeah, but dad, the kids in our class who go to bed early don't have, don't have friends. He, he was not, he wasn't kidding. And, and that cultural ritual, that the space in which we connect is this late night space. And I remember that as a, I remember this from my teenage years and early college years, this sense that the night is ours. This is our space. Those yes. meddling adults are, will leave us alone and, and, and we can just frolic and inhabit this space. And it was, it was wonderful. It was, it was exhilarating. Unfortunately, there's a high price we pay for that. Well, there's a spectacular irony, of course, because you know this, this need to be connected and to interact um, yeah. at the cost of sleep <laughs> means that the quality of those interactions um, diminish completely. So yeah, you're right, more likely right, to be right. you know, less empathetic, but more, more, more sort of irritable and 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 a, and a drop in sense of humour, uh, and so that as as we said that the the things that make us these special animals are are, are sort of knocked sideways from this this poor night of sleep. Well, I I have done a lot of A/B testing of different parenting uh, messages to my teenage uh, children, uh, most of which have resulted in failure. But what I've tried to do on the subject of sleep is to reframe it as a positive. Yeah. Think of sleep as an IQ boosting super pill. Would you like an extra fifteen points of IQ? Just sleep for nine hours, you know, ten hours. Yeah. As as you say at one point in the book, a, a big juicy night of sleep is arguably the best cognitive enhancer that we have. I mean. Even, if we you could put sleep in a pill, it would be a a super a super pill, right? <laughs> You'd be off to Stockholm getting a Nobel Prize, absolutely. And and you know it's stuff that we can we can take some control over. Yes, uh, it is. It is. There's no, in no doubt in my mind. It is. It is the best cognitive enhancer we've got. Paul McCartney, you say, woke up after a night of sleep in 1964 with the melody of Yesterday mm. fully formed. Einstein slept for ten hours a night. Yeah. Do you think that Einstein sleeping for 10 plus hours per night uh, was correlated with some of his uh, extraordinary discoveries? I don't know. I mean, I, I always, as I talk about in the book, you know, I always cite uh, Einstein as being the sort of the poster boy for sleep saying, you know, here's the, here's the most famous genius that we all um, know. And he used to defend his sleep. He used to get 10 hours every night. And as uh, I also talk about in the book, you know, I was, I was talking about this and somebody put their hand up and said, yes, but Salvador Dali, he was a genius and he only used to sleep for fractions of a second. And of course, what Dali used to do was hold this spoon in his hand uh, <laughs> over a metal plate. And as soon yeah. as he fell asleep, you know, he dropped the spoon on the yeah. metal plate and wake himself up. And as I pointed out, yeah, well, what Darwin needed was forensic spectacular cognitive dissecting of the world. And what Dali managed to achieve by lack of sleep was this completely surreal vision and a distortion of reality, which informed yep. his art. So he may at some level have been a genius, but, but, but it, it was this, you know, essentially as a result of depriving himself of sleep, yep. it's, it seems that he really did do it deliberately to get those surreal uh, impressions of the world. And of course he was a deeply complicated and in some sense, quite a nasty individual. Well, it's it's funny. I mean, I, I have the good fortune of getting of getting good sleep most of the time. But when I occasionally wake up very early to catch a flight or something, it almost feels to me like a drug experience. If I only am sleep deprived on rare occasion, I find it kind of novel and interesting. <laughs> but but when, when I, I really wouldn't want to live in that state at all. No, that's right, Rufus. But but you know, um, you could argue that twenty percent or more of the working population, because they're on night shift work, are in that state. Um, they are being deprived of their full potential, and I think that is very difficult to deal with. As I said, we've got the twenty four seven society; it's not going to go away. But there are serious consequences, and people need to understand this. My head. I'm still 
how did we get so out of sync with our biological clocks? To understand that, you have to understand why we sleep in the first place. That's coming up after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. The question of why we sleep in the first place has been considered somewhat of a scientific mystery. You have been directly involved with the process of figuring this out, right? So, well, so let's, yeah. How, yeah. How, what, what, why, how is it that our need for sleep evolved to begin with? Why, why do we have to, have to surrender eight hours of our lives every day? Okay, let me give you my theory for sleep. And I, and I published this this paper a few years ago. And and with the advice of the editor, the title got changed to There is No Mystery to Sleep, which, of course, has irritated my sleep colleagues, uh, some of my sleep colleagues. <laughs> I can in, imagine. Incredibly. Yeah. So the, yeah. the, if I can try and sort of summarize the argument, is that yeah. essentially all life on the planet, almost all life on the planet, has had an evolutionary response to the earth rotating on its axis and producing a day-night cycle, a period of light, of dark, of warmth, of cold, um, and all the rest of it. And what life has done is evolved specializations to allow us to cope optimally, either when you're active or when you're inactive. And of course, you can't be both. So if you think about the specializations that owls have to allow them to function at night, uh, they're completely different from birds who function during the day. And that's true for nocturnal and diurnal animals generally. If you put them in the wrong part of the day, take mm. a night animal and put it during the day, it usually fails very badly. So once you've made the evolutionary decision to become day active or night active, then you need to avoid moving around within an environment to which you're poorly adapted. Now, once you've made that decision, to be active or inactive, then you apportion your physiology accordingly. So for us, for example, we've had all this information flooding in during the day. And so what we do is we park it and then we process it offline. And so when we're inactive, we're not taking in lots of more uh, sensory information. We've got the capacity to start to play with that information, consolidate it to memory or to um, start to, to turn it into cr creative ideas. In the same way that if we've been metabolizing stuff during the day, during the active phase, we then need to package up some of the toxins and bad stuff that's been generated at night. So there's been compartmentalization in time. So, my definition of sleep would be a period of physical inactivity, uh, preventing you from moving around within an environment to which you're poorly adapted, but during which time you undertake critical biological processes. And so this would explain, of course, why sleep differs between different groups of animals, why our sleep changes as we age, why perhaps we need so much sleep when we're young, because everything is new. You know, these yes. are new yes. dynamic experiences. They need to be converted to memory and then manipulated. Yeah. And, and as we age, of course, there's far less novelty in our world. So perhaps you don't need to sleep as long. So I think it, sleep is this extraordinarily dynamic process, but there's nothing 
you know, spooky about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, people often yeah. ask, you know, well, why do you sleep? Well, you could also ask, you know, why do you, why are you awake? Why are you conscious? And these are, these yeah. are sort of essentially um, the yin and yang of, of biological existence. Well, it, it, it's, it's so fascinating because when we, when we think of our evolutionary process, we think of hundreds of thousands of years, sometimes millions of years, but we're talking here about billions of years, right? Going back to the formation of the earth four and a half billion years ago and this adaptation to this, this light cycle. And as you point out, almost all life shows, demonstrates these 24 hour cycles, yeah. uh, including bacteria. Absolutely. Uh, and it's a kind of evolutionary decision to specialize mm. in, I, I probably for most organisms, daylight, but in some in, in the evening. And so we have in our own bodies, this master clock that has evolved, as well as billions of individual clocks in, in is it in every cell has, has its own clock? It, is that it, it looks like that. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to be a professor at the University of Virginia from 1988 to 1995. And, and while I was there, I was part of the National Science Foundation Center for Biological Timing. And at that time, lots of this exciting stuff was, was emerging. I, I worked with some researchers, uh, Martin Ralph and Mike Menick at Virginia, who were pivotal in defining a, a, a structure within the brain, the suprachiasmatic nuclei, the SCN, as being the master clock, and some really cool experiments which demonstrated this. And what we thought then is you've got this master clock in the brain, and it's then forcing 24-hour rhythms on the rest of the body. And then there was this extraordinary meeting in the late 80s, where a Swiss scientist called Uli Schibler showed that different cells were capable of generating a circadian rhythm. And almost overnight, our view of circadian organization had changed from this master clock forcing rhythmicity on the rest of the body to a master clock coordinating the rhythmic activity of billions and billions of individual cellular clocks organized throughout the organ systems of the body. Our words tend to be a bit loose. You know, we call the clock, the body clock. Well, actually, yeah, yeah. it's really a circadian system, an entire sort of architecture of time throughout our bodies, which is just so extraordinary. I mean, if you think about it, for our biology to function, we need the right stuff at the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And what the circadian system can do is timestamp all of this. And what it stops us doing is our biology doing everything at once. It allows a beautiful sequential arrangement of process after process after process in the right order, um, allowing us to function optimally. And the SCN, as you explain, is like a conductor of a of a symphony, yeah. right? Yeah. Of 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 bodily mechanisms. And when we think about these axes of our physical health, you know, diet, exercise, and and sleep, in all three cases, it feels like our departures from our ancestral environment have caused a lot of trouble. <laughs> right? Well, that's right. right. Because because we 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 evolved to in an environment where we we worked outside every day. We woke up to the rising sun. And we did not have serious society-wide sleep problems. We are a remarkable species, but one of our uh, handicaps, to some extent, is our arrogance. It's it's also part of our strength, I guess. But it's the assumption that the natural world really <laughs> has nothing to do with us, and we can do what we like whenever we like, you know, whatever time we choose. And we forget the fact that we are products of billions of years of evolution. Um, and we can't just abandon that within 100 or 150 years. I mean, to give you some sense of that connectivity with the rest of the biological world, the fly clockwork and the human clockwork are very, very similar. So organisms were separated by evolutionary divergence what, 600 million years ago, um, still share the same basic clock properties. So it's a good illustration that the possession of some sort of 24-hour circadian clock is almost a signature for life. And indeed, I understand that for, for the Mars missions, uh, for looking for life on Mars, they've looked for the, 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 the production of organic materials, uh, for example, in the soil uh, over, a, over the Martian day, which is, what, 24 hours and something like 36 minutes. Uh, you know, but understanding that, that circadian rhythms are part of this, this feature of life. Well, maybe we should turn, Russell, to 
how the practical steps that each of us can take to sleep better, because this is a, it's a it's it's something I think almost everyone listening, I'm guessing, is trying to figure out how to sleep better, right? Yeah, we're all doing our best, but it's a it's a project I think most people are working on. First of all, I guess I would ask: Is more sleep always better? I mean, you've 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 mentioned that we all have different chronotypes and we have different sleep needs, and we should basically we can assess how much sleep we need based on how we feel. Is it always better for us to get more sleep? Well, it's always good to get the sleep that our individual bodies need. And, and we tend to sleep for the, the sleep that we need. Most sleep will be dictated by your biology. Um, and so you get what you need. Uh, it's, it's worth talking about. There have been studies which, which have irritated me a lot because they've said, ah, oh, well, if you sleep longer than nine hours, you're going to have a shortened life expectancy. Or if you, if you sleep less than, than five hours, you're going to have a shortened life expectancy. There may be some truth in that. However, the way the studies were done was deeply flawed because you didn't know anything about the health status of the individuals in the study. So, for example, some individuals may have been uh, suffering fatigue and sleeping, as it were, long because they already had an underlying health condition which would have shortened their life. And in the same way, um, let's say, you know, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, um, you know, massive snoring hugely disrupts uh, sleep duration, and that is associated with very poor health. So, um, so, so the studies which said well, we've got to get you know the optimum level for sleep or less than or more than, I just Take it with a pinch of salt. It's it's got to be what your body is demanding of you, and what you then need to defend for yourself and your optimum ability to function. It seems that exposure to light really matters. I love your phrase uh, that we should take a morning photon shower, <laughs> right? Immerse <laughs> yeah. ourselves in that. And I, I I tend to run on on. I live in New York City and run on the Hudson River every morning, and I find. Just, just watching the early sun on a horizon of water to be a, a really wonderful way to start the day. And I feel like it kind of orients me. Well, absolutely. In fact, you're doing two wonderful things. You're getting morning light exposure, which is essential for setting the clock. And we should talk more about light in a moment. But also, it's been shown that exercise can also help regulate the clock. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we've got this clock that, that um, in most of us is slightly longer than 24 hours on average about 10 or 15 minutes longer. So if we went to a deep dark cave, constant light, constant temperature, then relative to the outside, we get up and go to bed 15 minutes later and later and later each day. And this is, of course, what you see with individuals who have no eyes, mm. who are time blind. Um, they just drift, or we call it free running, through time. And so in the natural world, uh, what we need is a daily setting cue. Light is the most important, but light, morning light, can be reinforced by, by exercise as well. So mm. morning light advances the clock, the sleep-wake cycle, makes you get up earlier. Evening light does the opposite. Uh, it makes you go to bed later and get up later. And we did a study of university wow. students around the world a few few years ago, showing that the later the chronotype, the more owl-like uh, an individual was, reflected that the fact they didn't get much morning light, if any morning light at all, which would make them get up earlier, but they got lots of late afternoon, early evening light, which would push them to a later stage. So if you happen to be a late type and you need to be more of a morning type, you can set the alarm, either sit in front of a light box or go outside, preferably get that morning photon shower, which will advance the clock and make it easier for you to get up earlier and go to bed earlier. So I know, Russell, that you are somewhat uh, skeptical about sleep trackers, uh, but I will tell you that in my case, I, I purchased an Aura ring a year ago or something, and I, I have a classic sort of data obsession, manage what you measure personality, I guess. And I am, if I get over an 85 in my sleep, I get a crown. And I, I, I now am, I've been totally gamified. And I now, uh, they train me like a circus elephant to go to bed at consistent times now, I, 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 I'm much more consistent. And But what's been most fascinating to me, and I, I am skeptical about some of the specific assessments of REM sleep, deep sleep, et cetera. But what has been extraordinary to me is, has been to witness how much my heart rate while I'm sleeping is impacted by 
uh, late drinking or eating, which is something that I, I was the cautionary tale of the guy who revs up the system in the morning with three cups of coffee and then downshifts at night with a couple glasses of wine. And I loved that ritual, but I, it was more and more clear to me that this was not helping me. And, and it was it was the sleep tracking device that caused me to see that my heart rate was quite literally 20% higher over the course of an eight-hour sleep when I had had the extra drink. And so I, I wonder whether, so I, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat in defense of the possible utility of sleep trackers if we are humble about their accuracy. But, but Rufus, you, you're using these devices in, in the appropriate way. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem is some people are using them and then getting really anxious because they're oh. taking a message like you had a bad night of sleep or, um, um, or you got no slow wave sleep or whatever uh, very seriously. And I think you can. Yes, there is a role for, for trackers, but um, used with caution and, and, and judiciously. Yeah. But there's not a role apparently for alcohol as a sleep aid. Not really, no, because it's a sedative. It's like uh, you know a sleeping tablet generally, and in fact, with excessive alcohol consumption, you can actually inhibit memory formation and the processing of information. So one of the really important things that's going on in the brain whilst you sleep. So it's really important to distinguish between sedatives and natural sleep. Sedatives do not provide a natural mimic for sleep. So yeah, moderate drinking is fine, but you know, really, please don't use alcohol as as a way of trying to induce sleep because it doesn't work. And of course, it's it's the problem. I mean, you know, people are driving the waking day with endless cups of coffee, and then of course sedating themselves uh, when they realise they need to try and get off to sleep at night. And it's not an effective strategy. Yeah, the definition of the word moderate has been my problem. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we all know what moderate drinking quite, is. It's, quite subjective. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, yes, it's basically drinking less than your doctor. Um. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. Exactly right. When we come back, Russell shares his simple tips for getting a better night's sleep. You know, I think it could be useful to take a step back and tell you a little bit more about why we do what we do at the Next Big Idea Club. We do it because our lives have been transformed by books. Fresh ideas from the world's great thinkers we find both fascinating and useful. And yet we know that books can be really long and we have limited time. We know that you're busy. There is a universe of brilliant ideas stuck in books trying to get out, trying to get into your ears. So we created the Next Big Idea app, which delivers the key insights from the best new books directly into your ears in only 12 minutes from the authors themselves. This part is important. Other book summary apps summarize books without permission from the authors who deliver the heart and soul of these books. We want to give you the authentic article and we want to help authors succeed. We want their ideas to be discovered. And we hope that after downloading our app, you will also buy their books. Every time someone downloads our app and every time someone subscribes and joins our community, it puts a bounce in the step of all of the nine amazing members of the Next Big Idea Club team, guaranteed. You subscribe and you will put a bounce in our step, maybe two. Please join us. Just search for Next Big Idea wherever you get your apps. There is no better way to get smart fast and no better way to put a bounce in our steps. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. We should talk about what you can do. I think we've been yes, quite, yes, or I've great, been quite great. negative. So yes, what can we do? Well, you can yeah. divide up, I think, the sort of the, 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 the tips into what you should do during the day, before bed, what you should do in the bedroom and, yeah. and and then in bed itself. You know, if we start with during the day, get that photon shower, that morning uh, exposure to light. And it's very important to appreciate that those specialized cells need bright light. It's the kind of levels that you get outside. So several thousands of lux, not sort of room light, which is one, two or 300 lux. So get outside or get a bright light. Interesting. Yeah. If you nap during the day, uh, make sure it's not longer than 20 minutes and not within six hours of bedtime, you know, because what you're going to do is push back the sleep pressure. And, it, you know, nice studies have shown that if it's about 15, 20 minutes, you can actually enhance your performance during the second half of the day, be more productive, therefore be more, be more relaxed about what you've achieved during the day. 
Okay. We talked about exercise, very important, do exercise. Um, morning exercise has, has, has been shown to be good to reinforce that light signal. Try not to be too close to bedtime because what exercise will do is drive up core body temperature and increased core body temperature can prevent you falling off to sleep. It, it, it seems that there's a, there's a natural drop, a circadian-driven drop in core body temperature. It's only about a degree, but if you block that, it's more difficult to get off to sleep. Food intake. Well, what's this got to do? Well, we've shifted our eating habits massively. So for example, in 1100, the main meal of the day was breakfast. By the 1500s, it had shifted to 11, 12 o'clock uh, during the day. Mm. And it rattled around lunchtime, uh, what my grandparents would have called dinner time, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. many hundreds of years. And then we had the Industrial Revolution, where people, particularly where they were spending a long time commuting, so they were rushing off in the morning, probably didn't have time for a decent breakfast, certainly weren't, weren't coming home for a big lunch. So they'd finally get home in the evening and, and eat uh, massively uh, before bedtime. And that's been shown to increase your chances of diabetes 2, uh, obesity, and of course, those problems, uh, increased sleep problems, not least obstructive sleep apnea. So try and concentrate your, your main calories during the first half of the day. Now, now quick, quick, inter quick, yeah. quick interjection here. I'm sorry. I have gotten on this intermittent fasting bandwagon. And for the past couple of years, I've shifted to not eating, only eating in an eight-hour window, yeah. which I've, I've found has been easiest to do by not eating until lunchtime. But, but I have seen this reduce my cholesterol, it, it, have a bunch of uh, positive impacts uh, on, according to my, you know, my, my doctor. Do you warn against this, this idea well, of skipping I, breakfast? I, I, I am not a dietitian, uh, but certainly uh, on the basis of the data, if you give the same meal uh, in the morning versus the, uh, before bedtime, then the levels of glucose are much higher in the blood in the evening versus the morning. So the, the, the glucose is cleared and dealt with uh, and, and metabolized uh, in the yeah. morning, but not in the evening. And of course, our, our, our metabolism is very different during the night and the day. So during the day, we're yeah. burning up the calories we consume to right. um, exist. Whereas, of course, at night, we're dependent upon mobilizing stored calories in the form of fat or, or forms of, of, of glucose uh, uh, stored in the liver. And so the argument is that if you take a big meal before you go to bed, you're not going to be metabolizing it because you're going to be resting. And so you'll convert it to fat or, or glycogen within the liver and uh, essentially predisposing to fatty liver disease and obesity. So the, the metabolic data are really quite clear that same meal, morning versus afternoon, you're going to get rid of that glucose if you take it in the morning. So the advice from the chrononutritionalists um, is try and concentrate food intake during the first half of the day. Not saying don't eat anything in the evening, but just very mild um, yeah, food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we've talked about not drinking too much caffeine during the day. Yeah. I think one of the key things during the day is to step back from stressful situations. I think many of us would argue that most people don't have a sleep problem. They have a stress or an anxiety problem. Interesting. And you, yeah, wow. and you've got to separate that sort of work high tension from relaxation in the early evening and before bedtime. It's very difficult. Lockdown was a classic example where, where so many people's bedrooms were converted into offices. So you could never get away from work. But do find ways of, of de-stressing towards the end of the day. That might be going to the gym, for example, or what I try and do is go for a swim or something. So those are some tips during the day. Yeah, yeah. Before bed, keep the light levels low, 30 minutes before bedtime. The brighter the light, the greater the alerting effect that light will, will have. And the more alert you are, the more difficult it is to get to sleep. Stop using electronic devices again 30 minutes before bedtime. And, and that's tricky, I know, you know, but get the televisions out of the bedroom. Uh, stop using your, your, your smartphones and all the rest of it. Um, we talked about avoiding prescription uh, drugs. Uh, 
Of course, they can work short term, uh, but every, every clinician would say these are not a long term solution to poor sleep. You've got to work out another strategy than being dependent upon sleeping tablets. How about CBD and melatonin? What do you yeah, think of those? Well, cannabinoids, there's some really interesting data uh, suggesting that they will be useful for relaxing individuals and promoting sleep. The, it's still early days, but the trials that are emerging are looking quite promising. Melatonin, it's really important important that you raise this, Rufus, because melatonin is often called a sleep hormone, and it is emphatically not. It's a mild modulator of sleep. And many studies have, have um, been undertaken looking at the effects of melatonin before bedtime. The most efficacious study was that uh, taking melatonin before bedtime can reduce the time it takes to get to sleep by about 20 to 30 minutes. So it's not a big effect. And individuals, for example, who don't produce melatonin don't have massively disturbed sleep-wake patterns. So I'm not a great fan of melatonin. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, there's a significant placebo effect. So you know, it's, it's a modulator. So, but it's a really important point. But again, in, in the sort of before bed category, uh, avoid the discussion of, of stressful topics. Now, this is this quite Honey, ironic. I'm not, av I'm not available to discuss uh, finances tonight. Right? Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the problem because for many couples, of course, it's the only time that they get to, to finally wind down at the end of the day and say, you know, we've got these issues that we need to discuss, but please don't do the finances or any other stressful topics uh, before bedtime. Yeah. Again, winding down uh, before bed, immediately before bed, whether it's sort of relaxing music or mindfulness. I was very, very, um, very snooty about um, mindfulness. I, I sort of put it in the same box as crystal waving. And then I actually yeah, yeah. looked into it. And at, it, it, it's a great relaxation technique. It, it works uh, for some people and it's worth thinking about. The bedroom itself shouldn't be too warm. It's part of that, you know, dropping core body temperature and getting you off to sleep. And, and sometimes bedrooms are, are too warm. The bedroom should ideally be quiet. And if it isn't, you could use white noise or some relaxing sound such as the sea. Keep it dark. Use blackout curtains, which can be quite useful. Yeah. Um, don't clock watch. This is really important. Many people have an illuminated dial uh, on their clocks before, you know, but by their beds. And of course, if you happen to wake up, and it's will come on to waking up in a moment, um, you look to the clock and you think, oh my goodness, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off. You get really stressed and anxious. Yes, and so yes. you don't go back to sleep again. And so yeah. it doesn't matter. Cover the dial. Um, you, the important bit of information is when the alarm goes, goes off, not actually specifically what the time is. Yes, yes. And even an extra half hour of sleep or hour of sleep is helpful because there, yeah. there are some people who talk about these 45-minute sleep cycles and you have to time it correctly, but is that not the case? It depends on, yeah, there, there are these, the, the, the REM, non-REM cycle, and, and the non-REM can take you back down into deep sleep fairly quickly. We tend to have less deep sleep uh, as uh, during the second half of the night and more rapid eye movement or REM sleep. Yeah. And of course, we, we wake naturally from, from REM sleep, which is uh, why if you do wake naturally, you, chances are you will have have some fragment of, of memory of, of, of the dreams because uh, they tend to go on dur during REM sleep. So now we've gone from during the day, before bed, the bedroom to in bed. Yes. And, and consistent timing is this Absolutely. Important? Keep a good yeah. routine. That's really important. And then I don't know about Americans, but, but Brits, I think, are a bit a bit mean about their bedding. Um, I don't think we sort of realize that 30% of our lives will be spent in bed. And we're a bit cheap about the sorts of mattresses and yeah. the pillows and things. So it's worth investing in a gloriously comfortable bed, mattress, and pillows. It's it's not a luxury. We should allocate roughly 30% of our budget. <laughs> right? I'm not which, 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 by the way, I think I think several hundred years ago, that might have, I remember reading that in yeah. the colonial days in the you know, 1700s in, in early colonial America, America, that the, the four-poster bed could cost as much as the house in which it sat. Yes. Um, yes. And people would, and, and one can understand why one would allocate resources like that because sleep is so critical to our happiness. And, and it is, as you say, it's a third of our lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing that a lot of people use, and there's not, I have to say, the science basis for it is pretty low, and that's using relaxing oils such as lavender. Now, I can see the psychology behind this, because if you define your sleeping space with a distinctive smell like lavender, then you think, right, this is where I sleep. And a lot of people, for example, take 
the smell that they have in their bedroom, like lavender, and if they're traveling, they have a sort of a small file of lavender so that they define the sleeping space in a hotel. And so it can work for some people. As I say, though, the data are not that good. Um, earplugs. Um, if your partner snores, then earplugs are one solution. Now, many people can't hack earplugs. And my advice here is that uh, if your partner snores, then find an alternative sleeping space. This is not a reflection on your relationship. Many elderly people, you know, suffer their partner snoring and they say, oh no, I couldn't possibly sleep in the, in a separate bed. It's the end of the marriage. It mm, isn't. Yeah, it just means yeah. you get a better night's sleep. And then the wake time that you have together, as we've discussed, will be better. You'll have a better sense of humor. You'll enjoy, enjoy each other's company yes. Uh, yes. more. But what you do need to be careful about is that your sleeping partner doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea, which is where the musculature of the throat collapses, blocking the airway, meaning that the brain is then deprived of oxygen. You stop breathing. And then, then the brain says, hang on, I'm being deprived of oxygen, wakes the person up. There's this mm. huge sort of yeah. gasping and then massive surges of blood pressure. And of course, that can be really dangerous, particularly if you are hypertensive or if you've got um, type 2 diabetes where the, where the small blood vessels in the eye can be damaged by large blood surges. So do take obstructive sleep apnea seriously. And then the final point is that if you wake stay calm. Uh, so, so basically, we're all taught, you know, you've got to have this eight hours of consolidated sleep. Nonsense. There's, there's strong evidence, both from the lab and from uh, studies of, of, of literature, that the natural sleep pattern of humans, like all other mammals, is you go to sleep, you're asleep for a while, you wake up, you may be conscious that you've woken up, you may not, you fall back to sleep again, and you go through a series of sleep-wake cycles. Um, and the key thing is that if you do wake, it's not necessarily the end of sleep. So many people yeah. will wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my goodness, that's it, I might as well sort of abandon sleep, uh, start uh, drinking coffee, looking at my emails. Whereas if you stay calm, you can yeah. stay calm either by laying in bed or you may want to find, you know, go to go to another room, keep the lights low, listen to some relaxing music, read a few pages of your favorite novel, you'll feel tired, and then you'll go back to sleep again. And it's so important to appreciate that waking up in the middle of the night is not necessarily the end of sleep. It's, it's a natural process, and we mustn't get stressed about it. Well, and, and, and as you say, this, this is uh, many of us are biphasic or polyphasic. Exactly. It used to be referred to as the second sleep, right? It yeah. used to be a cultural norm yeah. that we would wake up after four hours of sleep or so and actually per perhaps even have some social encounters and then, and then back to bed. Also a great time to have sex. Yeah, that's yes. In fact, um, there's a there's a Roger uh, Eckert has um, talked about this, and and he found the advice from a French doctor uh, for young couples, which was to uh, make love after your first sleep, when you'll be more rested and better at it. Um, now, I don't know if there's any scientific studies to, to substantiate that, but um, that was <laughs> the advice advice of a of a pre-industrial um, age uh, French doctor. So yeah, uh, and of course Tom Weir. Uh, in the States has taken individuals, uh, given them 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness, and the opportunity to sleep more during darkness expanded the sleep episode, and it became then either biphasic or polyphasic. So key thing is not to worry if you wake up in the middle of the night. One thing about that, though, it's quite interesting, particularly in the elderly, is that, um, and, and of course the elderly have an additional problem, is that sometimes they need to get up in the night and pee. And it, so it's, it can be a real problem, particularly uh, for, for, for some individuals, and particularly for individuals who are sitting in, ch in a chair all day and not moving around much. Because what happens yeah, is that the yeah. fluid will accumulate in the legs, in the lower legs. And when you then lie flat, that fluid is then reintegrated into the bloodstream. And just by lying flat after a day of sitting, you can generate a liter of urine. So it's it's important to be mobile for lots of reasons, but also, you know, do move around during the day and try not to sit all day, even if it's if it's uncomfortable, because that will uh, impact upon um, your urine production mm. uh, at night. That you're making me feel elderly, Russell, because I, even I think some middle-aged people like myself sometimes have to pee in the middle of the night. Yeah. Although what I've learned to do is is to 
is to ignore it, actually. <laughs> you know, that, that actually you get that signal that you could choose to, to take care of this or, or, or you could just go back to sleep. Yeah. I mean, what, interesting. I mean, a lot of people, middle-aged and elderly people, actually they have a sort of a pee bottle of some sort in the bedroom so they don't have to then, you know, stumble down the corridor, turn the lights on and all the rest of it. They pee, pee. Um, and then they use that for the garden because urine can be, uh, on the compost heap, can be wonderful. It's full of nitrogen, can be wonderful for the old plant in the garden. Now that is news you can use. That is that is a very useful tip. Just just make sure that it's clearly designated. The bottle absolutely. Designated, Rufus, but... you wanted some practical tips. <laughs> We've got them for sure. Well, Russell Foster, thank you for taking time out of your circadian rhythms to be with us today. Uh, we wish you and yours a great night's sleep tonight, better than last night, yeah. uh, and and for many nights to come. So thank you so much. Uh, so interesting. Thank you, Rufus. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you. That was Russell Foster, author of Lifetime. If you'd like to learn more about his book, download the Next Big Idea app and check out Russell's Book Bite, where he summarizes the book's five key insights in just 15 minutes. And once you've got our app, you can also listen to ad-free versions of this podcast, enjoy beautiful audio and video e-courses by brilliant authors like Susan Cain and Daniel Pink, and read or listen to hundreds of life-changing book summaries. Download the Next Big Idea app today. If you're enjoying this show and have 30 seconds to spare, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a five-star rating and a review if you think we've earned it. It may not seem like much, but it's actually one of the best ways to help us get the word out about this podcast. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. Working with a team at LinkedIn is like getting a beautiful photon shower. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.